Uh, Father, we are grateful uh, for these times where we can gather around your word with like-minded brothers and sisters, where we can cross the lines of our local churches and, and even geographic uh, regions and get to know new people and, and be encouraged by that. Uh, but most of all, we're, we're thankful that as we would spend particular time in your word and, and, and striving to ask uh, questions about life and ministry uh, around topics that uh, many of us deal with, uh, that you'll meet us in the text, that your spirit will give illumination and understanding. And as uh, he works that that miracle of sanctification in our hearts, that uh, we will be more like Christ, that our minds will be renewed to think thoughts, his thoughts after him, and thus we will be better qualified uh, to care for hurting people in his name and for his glory. So guide us now as we do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I'd love for you to grab your Bible and turn with me over to the book of Job. Uh, we're going to talk about bitterness in our hour here, and um, I'll try not to contribute to yours by making you late for lunch in a moment, but um, this is one of those topics that probably none of us would want to admit to dealing with, and one of the things that the scriptures continues to do as we honestly open it, hopefully day after day, seeking to know God more. One of the things that the scriptures do for us is they, it's almost like a mirror. Um, we, we, we see ourselves in the pages of scripture, not, not just the diagnostic portions where the Bible is teaching us some doctrine about anthropology, but we see ourselves in the characters that we read about, in the, in the, the real men and women that lived uh, ages ago, but, but nonetheless uh, were real human beings and, and sought to walk with God just as we do. And it's, it's actually pretty shocking how honest and raw God allowed those inspired stories to be in our Bible. And, and we're, 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 we come face to face with, with heroes, Jeremiah and Jonah, the prophets, the apostles, uh, the patriarchs, who wrestled with deep-seated difficulties that, again, is not typically the water, cool, water cooler topic of conversation uh, in our churches, uh, but things like bitterness. And um, as we come to the book of Job, I know probably all of you are familiar with the general story. Job is this righteous, God-fearing man. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us he was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He was the, the narrator tells us he was the greatest of all the men of the East in terms of his prosperity, uh, his animals, his, his wealth, uh, but even more than that, his character, his integrity, his walk with God. And, and you know the story that um, in, in one day, uh, Job loses uh, his animals, his crops, many of his servants, and, and most tragically, the death of his ten adult children in, in one afternoon. And, uh, of course, we're, as the reader, we're, we're acquainted with background information that Job and everybody else in the story don't know about, right? That, that this is a, a story really about God and Satan and, and something that God is... God is basically teaching Satan a lesson through the happenings of the story of Job. Uh, but, of course, Job doesn't know that. His friends don't know that. And, uh, and as if that first day is not tragic enough, uh, shortly after, God gives permission to Satan to afflict him even more, up to, but not including, his own death. And, and as you know, he was afflicted with uh, some sort of skin disorder that, made him exceedingly uncomfortable and unable to find any relief. And uh, in that day and culture, um, when you had such acute tragedy in such a short amount of time, the, the theology of the day said you must be under God's curse, plus the idea that not really understanding medical diseases and whatnot like we do today, uh, he was banished outside of the city to the local trash heap where he sat alone in his misery and dealing with his suffering. And uh, his friends come and they sit with him 
They, they go, you, you can picture them out at the trash heap, grieving with their friend, loving their friend in silence, being with him. Uh, and in chapter 3, verse 1, Job can't take it anymore. The Bible tells us, chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let, let, let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice amongst the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let no curse yet who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb. Or hide trouble from my eyes. In very poetic language, Job says, Why on earth was I even born? He says it more explicitly in verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. And we, we say, well, wh why? And he goes on uh, elaborating on that, right? Why did I not die at birth? And you say, why, why is he so offended that he was allowed to live? Look at verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter soul. That sets up the whole rest of the book. Why would God allow someone to live whose life would be characterized and chronicled by such painful, overwhelming, difficult, chronic suffering and loss? He's got physical suffering, the bodily affliction. He has spiritual suffering, the loss of his children, the conflict with his wife, dealing with this. We were just talking about depression in track two. And you understand that you know, even if you're feeling down because you have some physiological thing going on, you're still processing that in your soul. You're, you're still having to deal with that in your spirit. And Job asks the question, why would God give me life if this is how miserable my life was going to be? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. And he goes on, uh, people who long for death, but there is none, who dig for more hidden, than hidden treasure, who rejoice. Why doesn't God kill me, God says? Why did he let me be born? Okay, that's one question, but why doesn't he kill me now if this is what my life is going to be like? And, and that reminds us, guys, that Hard questions, questions that we're afraid to voice. Anguish, bitterness, depression, suicidal idolation are not unknown amongst godly believers like Job. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that Job does, the book is Job reminds us that suffering causes us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask. Job voices questions that you and I think in our heads but are afraid to share because they're raw and honest and, and, and maybe feel like they're getting too close to blasphemy even. But I say that as we, as we come to the topic of bitterness, there are very godly people that wrestled with this. And certainly Job's story is uh, significant, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a more difficult uh, uh, scenario than, than what Job went through. Uh, but we see Jonah in bitterness. We see Naomi in bitterness. Uh, we see many uh, godly believers, Hezekiah, um, and others, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But but that 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 gets us to this topic, and I think that maybe is why bitterness is one of those things that's allowed to go on too long. Is that we're afraid to talk about it, we're afraid to admit it, 
And, and what the Bible is doing here, as, as we would view it as, as almost a mirror, is it's, is it's drawing us in to say, hey, this is something we need to deal with. We need to be honest about the questions that we voice, similar in some ways with Job and other, other people in Scripture. And, and, and as the Bible would, would show us ourselves in that way, uh, hopefully we're encouraged, as, as we learn in Job and other places, to take these things to the Lord. So with that in mind, um, well, let's just let's just see if we can get our arms around bitterness as a concept, and, and then we'll come back to talk about uh, how does Scripture going to approach this. What what is bitterness? Uh, I love uh, appreciate uh, Dr. Bob Jones, Robert Jones. Uh, we were privileged to have him at one of our conferences here, just like this, uh, several years ago, and I had the privilege of uh, seeing him just a couple of weeks ago at the ACBC conference. Um, just a really faithful pastor scholar. So when you see his name, uh, know that that resource is, is going to be reliable. Uh, Dr. Jones describes bitterness as an inner anger lodged deep in the heart, a, a settled anger, the kind that not only merely reacts to somebody's offense, but forms a more general and global animosity against the offender himself. Um, so, so we're starting to get a little bit of this. You know, it, it's related to anger. It's an extension of anger. In fact, uh, sometimes we talk about bitterness being overcooked anger. You know, if you leave something on the pot on your stove longer than it's supposed to simmer and it overcooks, uh, the analogy fits, right? When we don't deal with anger and anger is allowed to just simmer on low, for a prolonged period of time, uh, depra- or, uh, bitterness often results. And, and, and recognize this, as we look at Job as an example, where is Job's bitterness directed toward? Or maybe we could say, who is Job's bitterness directed toward? Toward God. That's another reason we don't like to talk about it. Because we know we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to be angry at God. We're not supposed to be bitter at God. God doesn't do anything wrong. But, but nonetheless, do we wrestle with that? Absolutely. In moments of difficulty with people and circumstances, uh, in, in one sense, we understand this, in one sense, all sin is against God, right? So I might be angry, angry with the driver in front of me, but that anger ultimately diverts to God who is sovereignly running the universe in a way that I don't find inconvenient in that I don't find convenient in that moment. So so my anger, you know, uh horizontally is directed at the driver but vertically is directed at God. And bitterness is the same way. I think with Job and with Jonah and with some of our other examples Naomi, what we see and this is interesting, bitterness in the Bible is actually more often directed at God than at people. And I think that's insightful. Not, not that we can't be bitter with, with other people, and the Bible would give examples of that, but uh, bitterness is an is a overcooked anger. It's, it's a settled resentment. Now, now notice, thinking about Job, think of some of the accomplices. We, we understand that, that sinful emotion, or what we might think of as <laughs> a lot of counseling topics, like depression, like anxiety, like fear, almost always have accomplices. You don't tend to get somebody who's just depressed or just anxious or just bitter. In, in the, the short little window of Job's story, what are some of the other dynamics going on in Job's story that accompany his bitterness? What, 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 do, you, what do you hear there? What's that? Okay, his wife and, and, and her, her plead to just curse God and die. Okay, what else? Loss. Oh my goodness. You think loss is associated with bitterness? So when you're dealing with a bitter person, you're getting their story, your counseling radar is looking for loss, right? And with that loss, what else do we see? What tends to go with loss? Fear? Grief? Sorrow? Is it wrong that Job was... Grieving over his ten children that just died? 
Is it wrong that he's grieving over the fact that his his wife has lost hope that he's going to live? And in her grief over losing her children and probably going to, you know, she's thinking she's going to lose her husband. She's lost all her livelihood or her, her retirement savings, so to speak. No one wants to be her friend because everybody's viewing that God has some curse on this family in light of their affliction. So she's lost everything. And part of the cultural background that explains maybe her misguided advice to Job is that she was probably looking at a life of prostitution just merely to make ends meet. That's, that's about all the option you had in that culture. So grief, loss, sorrow. What else do you hear in, in Job's uh, uh, story that accompanies uh, bitterness? What's that? Doubt. Yeah, is, is God here? Is he good? Is he, right? Hopelessness. Yeah, what else? Yeah, his friends wrong counsel. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but certainly that didn't do anything to help his bitterness, did it? it and I think if anything, it, it, it fueled it all the more. Yeah. I, I said it a moment ago, what about hard questions? You talk to people that are struggling with bitterness, they're wrestling with some hard questions. Why would my adult child that I have poured every ounce of Money and energy and life and sacrifice for 18 years. Why would we? Why would they not want a relationship with me anymore? Why would God allow this to happen in my life? Why is light given to those who suffer? Right? You hear that? Questions. So when we're, when we're thinking about bitterness, we're not just on a sin hunt to call them to repentance. We, we may need to do that. But as we're getting to know the person's story, the Bible helps us to see there's all these other things going on. Bitterness is not happening in an isolation. Bitterness is happening in a narrative. It's happening in a history. It's happening in a context. And there's all these other things going on. And, and one of the things we're trying to do in biblical counseling is, is not just focus on the obvious sins, although we need to do that, but to care for the whole person by recognizing the fullness of what's actually going on in their story. And, and I love that the, 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 the stories in the Bible are not black and white. They're color. They're 4K. They're rich. They're real just like your story and just like mine. Just like our counselee's story. So we learn from that. Um, one thing that, that's helpful when we're thinking about this is, is to sort of compare and contrast sort of a, a momentary anger from a settled bitterness. And, and uh, th- there, there's definitely crossover here, but just recognize when we're dealing with anger in counseling, we're, we're thinking about anger that, that is that typically is a, you know, a- anger is a firecracker emotion, right? It's like, right? And, and then, sh- then it kind of uh, sim- uh, simmers down and just kind of glows for a little bit, and then it's out. And uh, anger tends to be a reaction to a particular situation, and feelings often subside with time. Now, now, footnote, as good biblical counselors, this is the advanced class, right? Uh, we know that, that allowing time to heal it is not good biblical counsel. But the reason so many people fall into the wrong notion that time heals ungodly emotions like anger is that after a little while, you do feel better, typically. So the, the feeling wears off. So in anger, we're typically thinking of something that's situational, momentary, a reaction, and, and those feelings often subside, whereas bitterness, in contrast, is settled. It's an overall disposition. Um, feelings often endure and even strengthen over time. And, and we don't have time to do this. I wish we did. But if we were to track, if we were to track Job's disposition all the way through the book, we would actually find that that his anger and bitterness toward God doesn't subside; it ramps up, in part because of the unhelpful counsel of his well-meaning but misguided friends, but nonetheless that, that the longevity of that chronic illness and the ongoing nature of his suffering, his bitterness just grows. So, so we're dealing with something a little bit different than, um, than just your garden variety anger. 
Um, and again, as I mentioned, uh, the, the Bible is no stranger to bitterness. Uh, think of all the bitter people in the Bible. If you still have Job open, uh, flip, flip over to chapter 7, verse 11. Now the friends are involved. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are engaged. Uh, you, you know the, the basic structure of the book, right? We have the introduction, then Job curses the day of his birth. We read that in chapter 3. And then his friends start responding. There's three friends and, and the, the, the narrative, that, that middle part of Job that you and I get confused about, what actually happens in that dialogue is one friend speaks, Job responds. The second friend speaks, Job responds. The third friend speaks, and Job responds. And then that cycle repeats three times. Except the very last time, the third time, uh, Bildad punts and says, I don't have anything more to say. And then uh, the fourth friend that we don't realize is there to the latter chapters, Elihu, uh, he has an extended discourse. Job has a, uh, some response with him, and then God steps on the stage in the last few books of the chapter. So in, that, in the, what's called the dialogue section of the book, we, we can see Job's heart response more clearly and even more raw. It's interesting. J- just like the way we do relationships, you know, the, the front end of Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz, they're a little more polite, they're a little more tempered, they're a little more careful. And as that thing goes on, man, the gloves come off. You know, this is a full-blown hockey fight at, at this point. So, um, and, and there's sarcasm, there's, there's unkindness, there's hurtful speech. I mean, it's, it's just, it's horrible. But, but look at this. As, as things start to ramp up, listen to what Job says in chapter 7, verse 11. He says, as things ramp up, he says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So he's opening up now more about what he's dealing with inside. And notice the uh, one of the reasons that Job is so difficult to understand is it's a lot of poetry. It's, it's dialogue and poetry. This is a very, very old book, perhaps one of the oldest books written in scripture and so the the language is old the the structure is difficult and it's a difficult book to understand we can kind of get caught up in that we can get get uh, stumbled up on that but notice the parallelism i will speak in the anguish of my soul i will complain in the bitterness of my spirit those two ideas being used as synonyms right that helps us to see again that bitterness is something that comes often out of anguish out of hurt, out of loss, out of grief. So when you're, when you're dealing with bitterness, expect that behind that bitterness or perhaps what led to that bitterness is some grief or some hurt or some being sinned against. Uh, that's certainly what, what Job is getting out here. He, he's bitter. That bitterness arose out of the anguish of his spirit. And it's, that's why the parallelism is used there flip the page over to chapter 10 verse 11 again ramping up chapter 10 verse 11 of job or excuse me uh, uh, that's a misprint it should be 10 1 10 1 i noted that in my notes here so chapter 10 verse 1 not 11 chapter 10 verse 1 i loathe my own life job was not willing to commit suicide maybe he was so weak in his body he he literally couldn't but he certainly talked about it and multiple times in this narrative he questions why hasn't god just killed me now isn't it interesting this is a footnote in job is a really interesting story what was the one thing satan wasn't allowed to do in the second round of request what's the one thing job wants god to do interesting why? Because part of what's going to happen is God is going to do things in and through Job's incredible suffering that are redemptive. Um, sometimes we look at somebody in turmoil and say, wouldn't it be better for them just to die? And, and we can talk about all the ethical issues associated with situations like that. But one of the things we ought to remember is that God has divinely 
wise and good purposes in the longevity of life, even where there is incredible suffering. And God ordained, even though Job's asking him, to not take his life. Because there were things, well, there were things that Job needed in his life more than relief from his suffering. And that's one of the takeaways. Enduring affliction, as much as we might want relief for ourselves or for a loved one, we put in the framework of understanding sometimes God chooses to work in the trial, not by bringing relief, but by increasing grace. And working in and through that trial, uh, redemptively valuable work. Anyway, I'm, I'm really trying not to preach the book of Job to you here, but I'm not doing a good job. Okay, so, so my point is, you see this ramp up. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my, play, chapter, to my complaint. Chapter 10, verse 1. I will speak in the betterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, meaning him, to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? See, that's where bitterness can go. Job is making demands and calling for condemnation of God. God, you've got it wrong. Um, we'll look at Ruth uh, at the end of our, our time together. Um, Hezekiah, we, we see this in his grief in the book of Isaiah with his illness and his affliction. One, one of the few good kings who... Uh, man, Hezekiah is a really interesting character study and I'm going to resist teaching the whole book of Isaiah to you now. But... Um, one of the few standout good kings, whole life. And at the very end of his life, he blows it. And one of the most horrific um, epitaphs of, of biblical characters is how Hezekiah ends his ministry. I think his bitterness was a part of that formula. In God's kindness, Job pulled out of it. Hezekiah didn't. Um, Jeremiah, and again, uh, Lamentations 3, you're very, very familiar with that. He, he says, you know, God has done all these things to me. God's this enemy that's like a lion going to devour me, um, like, like a bear lying in wait, like an archer shooting arrows at me. I'm his target. And, um, you know, he's made me drink uh, wormwood, and I'm, my heart is filled with bitterness, and, and I've forgotten what it's like to be happy, and God doesn't answer my prayer, and I'm just giving up. This is the prophet of God. And yet, and then we see God rescue him out of that in the latter half of Lamentations 3, just like we see God rescue Job out of his affliction. You know what's interesting? There are two characters in the Bible that are incredibly bitter. And the books end without telling us how they respond. Right? Who's character number one? Jonah. Jonah. Right? God spares the Ninevites. Jo Jonah goes out, raises his eyes to heaven, gets angry at God and says, I just knew you were going to do this. You're merciful and gracious and compassionate. I don't get... I just knew you would do this. And he's angry that God has shown mercy to his enemies. And, and, and he has a, a bit of a rant. I mean, I, I don't... I mean, it may be exaggerated, but he says, Lord, if, if this is the way things are going to be, just kill me. In a different but similar way, the same thing that Job asks God. But from a very different context, right? Um, and so then, and then the text tells us he goes out to see what God's going to do, right? And hoping that maybe his little rant will change God's mind. And God creates the plant, does the, does the little divine uh, experiment. Um, 
and then uh, the worm comes and eats the plant. You know, the, the only time the, the the only time the whole story that the Bible tells us Jonah was happy was when the plant grew over him and shaded him, which should tell you something about where his focus is, right? And then the worm comes, takes the same thing. Lord, I'm I'm angry to the point of death. Just kill me if this is the way life is going to be. And then God pulls him aside and says, um, "You were happy about this relief, this plant that you didn't work for. It came. It was a completely gift. It was a complete gift of my grace, is what God's saying. And you're more upset about that than the fact that there's 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left, meaning they're unbelievers. They don't know anything spiritually that I would show mercy to them. And you're you're more you're more focused on your own comfort than on the salvation of souls." And God says, you know, should I not have mercy on 120,000 people? Don't know the left hand from the right and many animals, period, the end, roll credits. And we go, what? The story ends like that? Why? It makes you think. The Bible is what? It's a mirror. Do you see yourself? Are there... Enemies, are there difficult people that we are really not happy about that God would show mercy to them? And, and of course, the whole point of Jonah is Jonah, as horrible as the Assyrians were, the reason he doesn't want God to show grace to his enemies is because he doesn't see that he's in the exact same position spiritually. He's just as much in need of God's grace and mercy as the Ninevites are. And that reminds us uh, of New Testament doctrines. You know, he who has been forgiven much loves much we forgive others as god in christ has forgiven us be merciful as your father in heaven has been merciful but why does the story end like that why we don't know how jonah responded because the question is not how does jonah respond the question is how are you and i going to respond as the reader uh what's the other story that ends like that ruth and um, one of our elders here um, has spent decades studying Ruth, and so I've, I've learned so much from his teaching. And uh, his conclusion, and I think I agree with him, is that the book of Ruth is not so much about Ruth and the kinsman redeemer and the line of David. I mean, that, that's all part of it in, in the overall Revelation history. The, the, the real part, the real story about, about Ruth is Naomi. And I'll show you that in a little bit. Okay, so other examples here. So we have all, we have all sorts of uh, examples that we can glean from here. What are some possible indicators of bitterness? Uh, again, uh, some of this is from uh, Robert Jones and, and uh, Lou Priolo's books that are mentioned there in the bibliography. But j- j- as a counselor, these are some things that you want to be looking for that might be indicators of bitterness. Again, these aren't determinative. You know, be a, be a, be a good biblical counselor, ask questions, draw them out, gather data. But things like unforgiveness, believing the worst, having distance or coldness in relationships, lacking mercy and grace toward others, a posture of condemnation, not seeing a person's good qualities, judgmental spirit, hypersensitivity, retaliation, condescending speech, suspicion of motives, disrespectful words, distrust, impatience. Psychology would say that bitterness is really a coping mechanism. Right? What are, what are many of these indicators here? They're coping mechanisms to keep people from getting hurt again. Right? And, and yet, we look at that and we go, you know, um, that may be true, and I don't like to get hurt just like you don't like to get hurt. And, and frankly, uh, whether it's Job or Jonah or some of these other you know, people that have been through horrible abuse situations, we don't want them to be hurt either. Right? No, no one wants, to, wants that. But think about the tragedy Think about the detriment to a person's spiritual health that happens if we look at these things and say, those are good because it's protecting you from being hurt again. Here's what the Bible's going to say. God is going to ask you to do things for His name's sake that put you and I in places of vulnerability. But to have Him and to know Him and to live for Him and to buy into what He's doing in the world makes that risk worth it. 
And that's part of what we're trying to do in counseling is help people to see that the safest place in the world to be is not when you're living in self-protection and all these coping mechanisms. The safest place you can be is right in the will of God, trusting Him and leaning on Him in all things. What does Psalm 16 say? I have set the Lord continually before me, and because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So watch out for these things. And when you see these symptoms, um, know that, that bitterness might be part of what's going on. Now, some of you have seen this before. When I teach on conflict resolution, I talk about the progression of conflict. Disposition, right? Conflict starts with living for self instead of Christ. Then it leads to our desires. That's James 4, right? Our desires, when we don't get them, we respond in anger because our desires are, are controlling, they're ruling. That leads to some sort of difference that I have with other people. That leads to a disagreement. And then, as that typically goes in our fallenness, when I don't get what I want, I have a disagreement, then I blow up in detonation, right? I either sin like a volcano or I sin like a crockpot. They're two different kinds of anger. And then the relationship begins to disintegrate as I continue in my anger, continue in my sin toward the other person. So I say that in review because typically where bitterness starts is on the bottom end of the graph there. There's been some anger there's been some fight, there's been some quarrel, uh, something has become has come between you and another person in a relationship, something has come between you and God. And so that's, that's where bitterness tends to start. So it usually begins, uh, on your notes there, by mishandling a hurt or a wrong. And, and often that hurt is, is not sinful. When someone sins against you, when you go through a loss or a grief or a tragedy or an accident or, or a horrible situation and sadness and grief, that, that's good, right? That, 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 that can be, um, you're not sinning by going through those things and you might even be grieving and sad in righteous and godly ways. But what happens is we, we, that moves into mishandling in some way the hurt, and, and I think um, I think a lot of this, honestly, is is fueled by the fallacy of the so-called grief stages, uh, which is very popular in our culture. Not a Christian system at all, but we've propagated in our, in our culture that there's certain things that you should be doing in your grief if you want to pop out on the other side healed and healthy. And many of those grief stages, according to Scripture, are actually sinful and ungodly ways to respond. And even the godly parts of the grief stages, we could sort of redeem them, lack a biblical reference at all. That this isn't living out of you know faith in Christ and walking with his word. So it happens when we're mishandling some sort of hurt or wrong, and maybe that's fueled by wrong ideas in the culture. We respond in sinful anger. Uh, we let the sun go down on our anger. This is, this is probably, um, the Bible doesn't tell us that bitterness happens when this arises, um, but uh, uh, this is no doubt one of the dangerous setups that leads to bitterness and resentment. Uh, scripture calls us, uh, you know this text in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, in your anger do not sin, do not let your sun go, do not let the sun go down on your anger, verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Paul's pulling those two things together saying, if you do let the sun go down on your anger, you are giving the devil an opportunity. And I think that's why bitterness becomes such a powerful force in people's lives is it's fueled in part by satanic opportunity. And so we let the sun go down on our anger and uh, you know, we may think some little fight we have with our spouse over nothing and, and we go to bed and, you know, she's on that side of the bed and we're on the other side of the bed and, you know, we're just going to let time heal it. And over time, that creates a distance and a coldness and a resentment between parties. We fail to practice biblical repentance and forgiveness. That that would be the way we don't let the sun go down in our anger is following what Ephesians goes on to say. If we get to the end of the chapter... Uh, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So that, that's the resolution. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Practice confession and forgiveness, and then put on kindness and tender-heartedness and patience. If we don't do that, we, we set the stage for bitterness. 
This recipe left to simmer in the heart leads to bitterness. It's fed by rehearsing the hurt or wrong over and over, not dealing with sin in our hearts, not thinking on what is true or taking thoughts captive, not remembering the gospel. Notice at the end of verse 32 of Ephesians, the, the, the whole point of dealing with conflict and dealing with hurts is that we remember how kind and forgiving God in Christ has been to us. The gospel has to be central. And like so many of our sin struggles, bitterness reduces us to practical atheism, doesn't it? Uh, we could cross-reference Romans chapter 12 where God says, remember, vengeance is mine. It's not your job, it's my job. Your job is to overcome evil with good. Well, that takes gospel grace to do that, doesn't it? That's not in our nature to do. That, that takes Jesus and his help to do that. But this is what happens, uh, and it sets up the development of forgiveness. Okay, And uh, so what, what I want to talk to you about now is a 12-step program. Um, I, 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 honest, honest to goodness, I did not mean this to be 12 steps. It's just, I prepared my notes and I looked at when I was done and I had 12. So it's 12 steps. Um, some of these are, 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 well, really you're probably familiar with all of these, but when you're, when you're crafting a ministry to somebody who's bitter, um, it's important that, that you be able to, to sort of spin Multiple plates at the same time. You've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time here because there's a lot of pieces going on that you need to deal with somewhat at the same time. Um, in grief, in suffering, in difficulty, certainly coming alongside as a loving friend, we're not, we're not downplaying building a relationship or data gathering, loving the person, listening. Uh, those are all parts of biblical counseling and, and just being a good godly friend. But but here but here here's some of the things you've got to try to help a person to own. Okay, number one is to deal with our own log first. Um, I'll take you to some of these passages. Others I'm just going to wave my hands at them because I know you're familiar with them already. Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven verse five, "You first remove the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly." To help your brother. Think of the implications of that. That's so profound. I mean, yes, we need to deal with our own sin first. But here's what Jesus is saying. If you don't deal with your own heart of bitterness first, whatever was done to you, whatever the situation, whatever your gripe is, even if it's legitimate, if you don't deal with your own heart first, you're looking at a carnival mirror image of the situation. It's not real. It's distorted it's exaggerated. You're looking through lenses that are blurring the contours of reality. And you know this, right? When you've talked to bitter people, when I've talked to bitter people, when someone's trying to talk to me, when I'm a bitter person, I'm not seeing straight. My picture of what's gone on is recklessly skewed. And Jesus tells us why. Until I deal with the sin of my own heart, I lack the spiritual capacity to see clearly. Oh, that's profound. And that's not just with bitterness, that's with any sin. So, so as we come alongside our, our bitter friend with, with our loving Christian arm around them, we want to help them to see that what they think is obvious, as plain as the, the, the sky is blue, may not be quite accurate. And we want to help them to see that Jesus would call them to deal with their heart first, and then they'll start to see. And you, you know, you've been there. You got some fight going on with your spouse or with your kid, and, and, and it's it's the hill to die on, right? You, you are, by God, you're gonna you're gonna die on that hill. And then Jesus works, and you get your heart in check, and you confess your sin, and then you look back and you go, "Why was I so worked up about that?" Because you weren't seeing clearly. That's why. You lack the capacity to see clearly. So we need to help them deal with our own log first. Number two, we need to remember the extent of our own, your own sin, and your need for mercy. I, I think Paul touches on this in Ephesians. We just looked at this. Jesus describes it in Matthew 18 with the, the unforgiving servant. This is the story of Jonah. We lack the inclination, 
the desire, the motivation, and capability to forgive others and to extend grace to them because we do not see our own spiritual bankruptcy before God and our desperate need for His mercy. And our friends that are in bitterness, when we're in bitterness, we have lost sight of just how much we need God's grace and just how kind and, and, and faithful He's been to grant us that, sin, that, that mercy and grace in our day of need. And, and you know, the cross does this, doesn't it? Uh, we, we don't call it the wonderful cross for no reason. Because it levels the playing field of humanity. Not in a way that, that demeans or undermines abuse or affliction or, or violence or mistreatment. We don't go to the cross to say, that sin against you was not so bad. We go to the cross because it reminds us that we are just as guilty before God as our afflictor. And we need grace and mercy just as much as they need it. And then we're able to forgive as God has forgiven us. We're able to extend mercy as our Heavenly Father has extended mercy. We, we realize we've been forgiven much and therefore we can love much. And so we, go, we, keep on, we, we stay in that, on that, that uh, spiritual treadmill, right? To rehearse God's kindness toward us in Christ over and over and over again. I think the Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent is a great way to do this in counseling. Passages that remind us of our guilt and God's grace. Passages that remind us of the, the benefits of Christ that we enjoy as, as, as free gifts of His mercy. Um, see, you, you don't overcome bitterness by a one-time intervention. Bitterness of its nature is an ongoing process. It's, it's like that program on the back of your... It's always running on your computer, on your phone. It slows everything down, right? It's, just, it's constantly running. You, you, don't, you don't shut that down just by one act. You overcome bitterness, listen, by replacing it by a different process. A righteous process. I'm not rehearsing that hurt over and over and over again in retaliation and thinking, right, right. I replace it with rehearsing gospel promises and gospel reminders and gospel kindnesses that God has granted in Christ. Uh, fourth, we want to help our dear friend to deal with anger in a biblical way. If one of the symptoms is we've let the sun go down on anger, well, the biblical remedy is to go back and, and deal with it in a biblical way. And you guys have had lots of training on that. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 reminds us that simple put on, put off process there regarding anger. And, and so we need to deal with anger. We also need to help practice biblical forgiveness. Um, Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Here's the thing. You guys know this. The, the, the classic secular way of thinking when, when secularists even talk about forgiveness we know that it's some therapeutic pseudo version right but even christians when christians talk about forgiveness when they've been hurt here's how it typically goes a person is hurt and bitter and angry and resentful and and cold and distant and they think the solution is they need to forgive the person that did the bad thing to them what's wrong with that biblically They haven't dealt with their own heart. See, at, see, if someone sins against me, th then yeah, my, my call is to grant forgiveness as they would come in confession. But if I sin in response to that hurt, and you know what? What sinners typically do when they're sinned against by other sinners is sin. So if I, if I respond with sin, now the focus doesn't moves from my forgiveness of them. Yes, that needs to happen. But the preliminary step, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, 3 to 5, is I have to deal with my own log first now. I have to deal with my own sin and anger and bitterness first. And then I'll see clearly to go deal with my brother that hurt me. So you see that? I, I think that's why we get stuck in bitterness. We're... we're we're pursuing the wrong solution in churches. I just can't forgive this person. I just can't forgive this person. Of course you can't forgive. Jesus said you're not even seeing it clearly, let alone can you forgive the person. Of course you can't do it. You got your steps out of order, right? 
So we, we have to help them with the, not just the practice of biblical forgiveness, but the order of biblical forgiveness. Also, we, we want to do a deep dive in, in loving biblically. You say, why do we want to do that? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own. Why do we want to do that? Because love is the perfect antidote to bitterness. And have you noticed how, how bitterness is, is like cancer? It metastasizes, it, it grows, it spreads. Have you noticed that? Well, how do, how do you replace, how do you rein that in? You, 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 re, you rein that in just like in the process, you replace it with robust, comprehensive, ever-growing, can I say it, ever-metastasizing love. Can we use metastasizing in a good way? Okay, good. <laughs> Check with our local doctor here. Um, right? That's what we need. Not, not, a, not a shot in the arm of love, a growing, chronic, spreading, ever, ever passionate love. And, and um, Paul doesn't elaborate in Romans 12, but when he says overcome evil with good, isn't that the most basic way we do it? We, we love God, that's the first commandment, but we love our neighbor. That's, that's the second way. Learning sophisticated ways of loving people that have hurt us is one of the antidotes to overcoming bitterness. Uh, Speaking of Romans 12, we strive to live at peace with all men, right? As much as it depends on you. We know in bitterness, and and there's overcome evil with good, we, we know in bitterness that often, even if we are successful and in dealing with our own heart, that doesn't mean the other person changes, that doesn't mean they start treating us nice. That doesn't mean all of a sudden they're willing to, you know, get along. And, and if you've done counseling, you know this, right? You're dealing with somebody who's been grossly sinned against. You're working with them, wishing that, you know, the other person would get their act together too. And often that doesn't happen. So, so part of dealing with bitterness is recognizing that we need to help a person to understand what does it mean as much as it depends on them to live at peace. Maybe in their marriage, maybe with an adult child or a parent, maybe with a coworker, maybe with a difficult person at church. Strive to live at peace. That, that's what Romans 12 tells us, right? As much as it depends on you, God does not hold you responsible for what the other person does or doesn't do. But he does hold you responsible for what you do. And uh, we're, we're parachuting into Romans 12, but if we expand it in the context, where does this start? Present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God. Where does that start? Well, read the first 11 chapters that, that teach you about the gospel and, and the work of justification and sanctification and working that out. And now I'm going to live that gospel as I present my life to God as a spiritual sacrifice. Well, what, what are one of the ways I'm going to do that? I'm going to strive to live as much as it depends on me with peace, at peace with other people who are difficult and who may have hurt me significantly and maybe they're they're continuing to afflict me overcoming evil and with good we already talked about that vengeance is god's right um practical ways to do that um how about this one taking your thoughts captive we know that that james tells us in james chapter one that we are led away and enticed by our own desires And that word enticed, of course, means that desires gain power to move us towards sin by deceiving us. Right? All all sin involves deception. And that deception fuels the wrong kind of wants. And the wrong kind of wants is what pulls us into the action of sin. So we have to deal with sin at the root level of how we're thinking about things. That's why Romans 12 starts with, be, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, of your mind. So expect with somebody with bitterness, just like any other vice, that there's a script that they're reading to themselves constantly. And that misguided, deceptive, lies-filled script is fueling the bitterness. You know, John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. He said, let, let no one think that he make any progress in sin who doth, who, who doth, I get the old English right, who, who doth not walk over the neck of his lusts. What is he saying? You don't kill sin by, you know, casually conversing with it. 
You kill sin by standing on its neck and starving it of its power and fuel. How do we do that? We teach people to take their thoughts captive. We teach them to live in Philippians 4, 8, to think on what's true and right and pure and lovely. We, we teach them to view their thoughts as prisoners of spiritual war that need to be interrogated to uh, assure us that they align with Christ. Otherwise, we throw them into prison. So we think on things that are true. We take our thoughts captive. We repent of our pride. What do Jonah and Job and Hezekiah, all our friends we talked about, what do they all have in, in common? Pride. I know better than God. So we, we, we don't like to admit this, but pride is the super fuel of bitterness, isn't it? It's a disposition. Our pride sets up the disposition, the lies we believe fuel it. And so we need to get that under control. And finally, pray with thankfulness. Pray with thankfulness. Thankfulness, like so many things in a walk with God, is, is the, it's, it's, it's the spiritual zap button, isn't it? Meaning, if I can thank God in whatever situation I find myself in, it launches me onto the right path. It may not be all the work I have to do, but it's, it's launched me in the right direction. And sometimes people that are, that are in bitterness, they're focusing on the wrong things. God has shown them thousands of mercies, and the only thing in their mind is the affliction. I, I mentioned uh, the story of Ruth, and uh, we're out of time, but let me just set this up and you can look at it on your own time. You guys know the story of Ruth. It takes place in the time of the judges. Naomi, Naomi comes back. She's lost her husband, her, her two daughters, and, and, and her son. So she has her two daughter-in-laws. One returns with her, Ruth, back to Bethlehem where she was from. And in chapter 1, they come into the city, and the whole city is stirred. In verse 20, the women of the city say, Is this Naomi? She says to them, Do not call me Naomi. Pleasantness, her name means. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. <clears throat> Bitterness, bitter. Why? She tells us. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. What does she say? God did this to me. What does Jonah say? God, you're doing this. You shouldn't do it. What's Job saying? God, you did this to me and you shouldn't have. And we read the story. God provides a redeemer for Ruth and her, and her family and the blessing of, of Boaz. And, and, and in this wonderful, incredible story of providence that looks back to the story of Judah and Tamar and that tragedy God chose to bring the Davidic line to the Messiah through Judah, through that that. Um, horrible sexual encounter that Judah has with his daughter-in-law. And it brings us up to this point at the end where we realize that God uses this incredible story to put Ruth and Naomi right in line of the Messiah and of King David. And the women of the city at the end of the story, the same women that said, is this Naomi? The same women at the city, see, see the women of the city that speak in chapter 1 and chapter 4, are there for you and me, the reader, to pay attention to. The women of the city are saying, pay attention to this, reader. Listen to this. The women of the city say this to Naomi in verse chapter 4, four verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name be famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to Him. So how does Naomi respond? Has God forgotten her? Has He really sent her away full and brought her back empty? 
or was he up to something? You know how the book ends? With a genealogy, the end, roll credits, right? Because the question is, how did she respond? How do we respond? When we feel like God has ripped something apart from us, he's done this. We miss what God is doing. And the question is, how will we respond as we see that hand of redemption in our own story? All right, let me pray. Father, thank you that in our difficulties, especially with anger and bitterness, that you are a kind and merciful father and that you in your grace, and we see it in these stories, have not left us. You've not abandoned us, but you're working miracles of redemptive transformation, even through difficult hurts and challenges. Father, give us grace in our own difficulties to see your kind hand and to submit ourselves to your wise providence, thanking you because we know you're good and we know you're doing good things. And give us grace as we counsel others that are struggling, just like Naomi, just like Job, just like Jonah, that we might point them to your work and your redemption. We're grateful, Lord. Make us, make us instruments that are ministers, uh, ministers of your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.